If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in the book of Genesis, chapter 9. The book of Genesis, chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Genesis, chapter 9. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's faithful. It is true. And we know this. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning and as we um, read it and as we meditate on it and as we study it, God, I pray that it would speak to our hearts and lives that we would hear it, and that we would respond to it. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the image of God. We find in this passage of Scripture that indeed it says that we are created in God's image. That's what imago Dei means, in God's image. Some of you could wonder, well, what in the world, as you saw this title, is, does that mean, Imago Dei? And, and indeed, it does mean the image of God. The image of God and how we have made attempts to destroy God's image is going to be our focus this morning. I want to talk to you about the sanctity of of human life. Now perhaps you're saying, well, I thought that that was a few Sundays ago, and indeed it was, but this morning I want to focus in on this, especially as we are in the middle of our baby bottle campaign. 30% of all babies conceived in America are murdered by abortion. 18% of the U.S. population has been murdered through abortion since Roe v. Wade. This is greater than the total population of 25 U.S. states, 219 countries. The U.S. has murdered more babies through abortion than the population of South Africa, South Korea, Spain, Poland, Canada, or Australia. Being outside of the womb is not a criteria for personhood. Why do women have abortions? Well, less than 
1% actually are because of rape, 6% because of health problems, and 93% because of social reasons. So this morning I want to talk to you about the sanctity of human life. And I don't want to just talk about abortion or the life of infants, but I want to talk about the entirety of human life. We discuss pro-life and pro-abortion. We discuss euthanasia or prolonging life through life support systems. But what we should be asking is how does God feel about the sanctity of life? Or what does God's word say to us about the sanctity of human life? That should be our question. And notice I did not say, how do you or I feel about the sanctity of human life? Because that question is irrelevant. But how does God feel? Because there's not one verse in the Bible. You can search the Bible through and through from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find one single verse that speaks of God answering to men. But you will find many verses that speak to us about man answering to God. We live in a day in a society where life is no longer regarded as sacred. In fact, we can look around and it seems that at every turn we can see the devaluation of human life. We can see it through a violence. We can see it through abortion on demand. We can see it through a constant push for allowing euthanasia. And we can sit and argue ethics all we want. And we can talk about how the problem is the moral decay in our society. But let's be clear. The challenges we face when it comes to devaluing human life stem from the erosion of the Word of God, the Bible, as a standard of truth in our society. When we decide that the Bible is not the standard, and we, dis- we accept things like the theory of evolution as our ultimate truth, then we are all just animals, and we have no basis for morality whatsoever. And no basis for any kind of cultural norm. Without the Bible as our standard of truth, there is no reason to confirm what we call the image of God. The Imago Dei. And there is no reason to hold to the precious truth that all human life is sacred. If a nation or a culture is ever going to survive, they must hold to and proclaim the biblical truth of the sanctity of human life. In the Old Testament, God had destroyed the earth and all of human and animal life except those who were on the ark. It was a new beginning for the human race, which was judged and destroyed because of its corruption. And in our text today, we notice one of the very first things that God did with Noah. And that was to affirm the sanctity of human life. God is establishing the foundation. How are we to view human life right from the start? Before the earth is repopulated with humanity, how do we view human life? If God proclaims the sanctity of human life from the beginning, then we are to do the same. 
And so first, I want us to see this morning that God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. He confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. These words we find here in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 and in verse 7 are the same words that were used way back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. The Lord desires for his people to multiply on the earth. Well, why? Well, think about the context of a husband and a wife. They love the Lord and they have children and they hopefully teach their children to love the Lord as well. And those children will grow up and serve the Lord and have their own children that they teach to love the Lord and so on. The will of the Lord is that the earth would be populated and through that God would be glorified. However, I have a a question as we read this, and one that I believe this text should raise for us, and one that we should answer. Do these verses mean that we should have as many kids as we possibly can? Do Do they mean that we can't use birth control, or that men can should never get a vasectomy? Because if they mean that, that that would be some serious implications for us. Do these verses indicate that if we we don't have children, then we're somehow sinful? Or that if we can't have children, then the Lord must be punishing us? You see how someone applies these verses can have a profound impact on their life. So we must understand as we read these verses, what, what exactly it's saying. And though we learn that God is saying be fruitful and multiply, we can't miss the first part of the verse when it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons. So what we see here is that children are the universal evidence of God's creation, blessing, and who are not to be disparaged, and children are not to be exploited but children are to be celebrated by responsible parenting and societal protection ultimately what we have here is a reaffirmation of the human life by god by blessing noah and his sons to multiply on the earth i say this so that we understand that children are to be looked at as a blessing from god they are a life not just some sort of object or a tax break. I also say this so that we understand that birth control can be morally permissible as long as birth control is not an abortifacient. In other words, if someone is going to use birth control, they should get multiple opinions and do plenty of research to verify that it indeed is not a an abortifacient, and the birth control is only used in the boundaries of marriage, not used to promote promiscuity, unmarried, or extramarital sex. So some might say, well, you said that children are a blessing. So shouldn't we always have as many blessings as we possibly can? After all, we don't want to try to limit the blessings from God. And some people have taken that very seriously and they've had uh, 
lot of children. And that is true. We shouldn't necessarily try to limit the blessings of God. That may be one way to look at it. But I would urge you not to use that mentality or that standard for someone else because after all, we really do limit blessings from God all the time. Think about it. We limit food. That's a blessing. We limit sleep. We limit hobbies. We limit material possessions, all blessings from God, and we limit all of them. Some people perhaps are better off waiting to have children until they can financially care for their children. Some people would also argue and say, well, well, if a Christian uses any form of birth control, then they're playing God. Again, that's an absurd statement because many of us use modern medicine for all kinds of things. We have no issue using modern medicine. When the doctor prescribes you medicine, hopefully you take it. Otherwise, you're going to have some serious problems. And so we use modern medicine. We use vitamins. We use things that we think might help extend our life. And yes, God ordains how many children we have. And it is possible that God ordains the use of birth control to get there. And maybe not. Again, it's a preference. There's a vast difference between preventing conception and destroying life after conception has occurred. Before conception has happened, there is no new life. New life is not involved. But once conception occurs, a human being has been formed. All that is required for that human being to survive is time and nurture. And it will soon be what we are. In other words, humans do not produce anything other than human life. And time is not a factor in determining personhood. I have yet to see a woman produce a cow. It doesn't work that way. Human life produces human life. That means that some forms of birth control are indeed immoral, and it means that any abortion is completely unacceptable. But it also means that any method of birth control which allows conception to take place which allows an egg to be fertilized but prevents implantation is immoral because that in essence is a form of abortion. Any form of birth control that destroys a developing human is not acceptable and should never be accepted to Christians. You see, we have a, a fault in Christians. We call it a victory when we say, well, look at this state. They, they decided no more abortions after 24 weeks or after 20 weeks or even the heartbeat bill. Oh, that's a victory. No, it's not. The minute that egg is fertilized, it's a human being. That moment, not when you hear a heartbeat, not when you... Not when something else happens, but the moment fertilization takes place. Additionally, let's be clear. Any 
couple that chooses to have sex must understand that with sex comes the responsibility of the possibility of conceiving a child. This is one reason why sex should be kept within the boundaries of marriage. If you have been given an awesome responsibility from the Lord and you've been given an incredible blessing, this is part of his plan to fill the earth. To abort a child is to shed the blood of an innocent human, which God condemns in verse 6. So sex should be reserved for marriage. And a couple should not marry until they are ready to accept the possible responsibility and blessing of having children. Now I want to talk for a moment about children and about what we clearly see the Lord laying out for us in this verse, which is that God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. Some people will say, well, I don't want children. I never want children. And they make a decision to use birth control to never have children. And I believe that if that's the case, we should examine our motives. If we don't want children because children will interfere with our life, well, that's living for self. That's living for your own pleasure and not for God. You see, as followers of Christ, we should be looking to adopt God's view of children. And his view is that they are a blessing and that we have to reject the world's view that children are a burden instead of a blessing. Children are, are a responsibility. There's no doubt about children being a responsibility. They do cause you to adjust your lifestyle. But you know what I found about children? They have a way of revealing to us our heart. My kids do this to me often. They reveal the sin in my own heart. Sometimes it's selfishness. Sometimes it's some form of anger. Sometimes it's bitterness. You see, they're a constant reminder that I'm not to live for myself. And with that said, I would also make it clear that sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes people want children for selfish reasons, right? There, there have been women who've gotten pregnant to try to keep their spouse in the relationship or a husband thinks a child will, will get the wife to stop complaining. And sometimes people want a child so they can gain love or attention that they never received as a child and they use that child to try to meet their own emotional needs and when their child leaves home they're devastated and so we should always examine our motives for either wanting or not wanting children there are other factors some should consider when it comes to children for example scripture clearly tells us and teaches us that we are to provide for our families that includes financially emotionally and spiritually that does not mean that you have to be wealthy and your kids have to run around in all the latest fashions of the day, but that you should be able to meet their basic needs. Also, we must consider as parents that we can, what we can handle in all these areas. Some parents can effectively parent two kids, while others can effectively parent 10 kids. And I know you're probably thinking, I don't, how in the world could you parent 10 kids? I think that often, but some people do it. 
Finally, let me be clear. I believe it's okay for a couple to responsibly use a method to prevent conception that is not considered abortion. If that couple has prayerfully checked their motives to make sure their decision is not based on selfishness or worldly pursuits or attitude towards children. Now, let me draw us back to the point, and that is this. God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated, which means that most Christian couples should want to have as many children as they can care for because they want to see those children love and serve Jesus Christ. It means that all children are a blessing from God and they all have value and they all deserve to be loved because they are God's gift to us. Which leads me to this and I'll wrap this point up because I've spent a long time here. Because we know scripturally because we know from god's word that all children are a blessing from god because we know from god's word that all children have value and deserve to be loved because we know from god's word that they all deserve to be taught to serve jesus christ as followers of christ we should seek to make sure that we do all we can to have as many children as we can. And that means adoption as well. Sometimes in God's divine plan, he has allowed someone else to have a child that they can't care for. And they have given that child up for adoption. Or perhaps the child enters the foster care system And I'm saying as Christians, we perhaps can care for children, but we have not had children or we have had children, but we can care for more children or our children have left our house and we can still care for children. Therefore, because of that reason, Because of what we believe about God's word, that they are a blessing, that they deserve to know about Jesus Christ and be taught about Jesus, that they are valued and they deserve to be loved. Because as Christians, we completely and fully and wholly understand that. We should seek to adopt other children. And if we can't adopt children, we should attempt to give help to others who can adopt children. So what I'm saying to you is as Christians, we should seek to adopt children if we are capable. And if you can't, you should give money, support, prayer, whatever it takes to see someone else adopt a child. Church, I want to be clear with you. There is no greater picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than that of adoption. That of taking a child that was not born to you and adopting that child into your family. You say, well, how is that a picture of the gospel? Because that 
is exactly what's happened to you and I. We weren't part of God's family. We were outsiders. We've been grafted in, adopted into the family of God. And here's the beauty of it. You and I, we have full rights as children of God. Right now, in the state of Illinois, there are over 3,000 kids in foster care. 3,000. And as Christians, we've grown great at talking about the evils of abortion. We've become good at saying abortion is sinful. But we have become terrible at offering some sort of alternative to mothers who are in a pregnancy and they don't know what to do and they don't know where to turn and they don't know how they're going to raise their baby. And, and we as Christians have done terrible at doing anything about that. But we'll, we'll rail against abortion. We're good at shaming someone for an abortion, but we are awful at showing grace and mercy for a mother who has nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. And we start by giving women an option, an alternative to abortion, by giving towards adoption. And by adopting children ourselves, or by helping programs that will help women that are in these situations, which is why we do a baby bottle blessing in the first place so we can help an organization that counsels mothers, that helps mothers, that walks through the process with mothers so that they have hope when they have their baby. You see, God confirms the sanctity of life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated. Number two, we see here that God confirms the sanctity of human life by ordaining humans to have dominion over animal life. Listen, I, I know we love our animals, and there's nothing wrong with loving our domesticated pets. I love my dog, and I hate him at the same time. But because um, he drives me absolutely bonkers. He barks at everything. But I, I still love the dog. But very clearly, God put fear of man in wild animals to ensure that animal life would not be a threat to humanity. And he has put the entirety of the animal life under man's control. He also very clearly and very plainly gave man permission to eat meat. In fact, he uses the word everything twice in verse 3. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So twice he says everything, just in case we're not clear. I am thankful for this because I like meat. 
many believe that before the flood, man and animals were vegetarian, but here man is given meat for sustenance. Now that's not to say that everyone has to eat meat because some people are vegetarian for health reason, but there is nothing that makes someone more spiritual because they don't eat meat. I'm, I think I'm kind of spiritual and you can give me a steak anytime you want. We also read that here God is making it clear that man is not to eat meat with its blood still in it. In other words, you do not eat the animal while it is still alive and that you drain the blood from the animal. That is, that is actually a pointing ahead to the sacrificial system that God will put into place under Moses. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Leviticus 17.11 So God requires that the soul that sins shall die. But by his grace he makes provision through the shed blood of an unacceptable substitute. Which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all who trust in Christ's death. On their behalf, do not have to face judgment. Now, we see that God made animals to serve people. He did not make people to serve animals. I know sometimes you feel like you're serving your pet, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you mistreat your animals or animals in general. We should seek to protect animals from needless destruction. And we should be kind to animals, especially those that, will, that we will use for food. You should make sure that they are treated kindly, even as you care for them. But animals are given to serve us. That's why we have animals. Not, they're not given for you to serve them. And I believe this is important to know, especially today. And this is an important theology. And the reason why it's an important theology is because we have a lot of stuff that goes around talking about animal rights. So we've elevated the saving of animals above the saving of people. And it's crazy to me that that people will launch campaigns to save the baby seals or save the eagles or save whatever it might be. And there will be huge fines levied against people doing harm to these animals. And those same people will be okay with destroying a baby through abortion. We have it backwards. The animal is here to serve man. And when we get things out of whack, we lobby for the rights of animals, ignoring the fact that those animals were given to us by God to feed hungry people. And so we see that God confirms the sanctity of human life by expressing his will for the earth to be populated and by ordaining 
dominion over animal life. That we would have dominion over animal life. Thirdly, God confirms the sanctity of human life by revealing his will for it to be protected through capital punishment. In verses 5 and 6, we have the establishment of human government by God. In these verses, God delegates authority to man for the life of man. Government is instated by God to put into check the sin of man and to protect man. Protect man from who? Protect man from himself. God makes it clear that because man is created in his image, that there is a sanctity of human life, that because the Imago Dei, there is a sanctity of human life, that human life has worth, that human life has value. Therefore, anyone who murders another person must pay the ultimate price for the murder by forfeiting their own life in exchange for the life that they have taken. Now, here is part of the problem that society has steadily decayed when it comes to human life. Because what is a life worth? What's a human life worth? Well, in society, it seems to depend on what stage of life you're in. Because seemingly, if you're not contributing to society, then you have no value. Or if you've already contributed to society, then you have no value either. So therefore, if one of those lives are taken, then very little, if anything, happens to you. That's the society we live in. How does that make you feel? If you're older and you've already contributed much to society, our society says you no longer have value. And we want to give in to government regulation to let them decide the value of human life. Furthermore, if you do take a life, what happens? Well, in most states, you get thrown in jail. So many years of prison. And it's at the taxpayer's expense. Even that says we don't value human life. And I'm not here to debate capital punishment, but I kind of am. Because I want to tell you what Scripture clearly teaches here in this passage of Scripture. More on that in just a minute. But there are those that feel that capital punishment has been replaced by the ethic that we see in the life of Christ. Christ. 
where Christ tells us to love our neighbors. And they would say, well, we're not called to take revenge. And revenge is a terrible thing. And I would agree that personally, personal revenge is a terrible thing. We can't kill a murderer. After all, if a murderer's life is taken, how will they ever have the opportunity to repent? Or if they do repent, then we've just killed a Christian. Which makes the issue even more complex. What crimes are deserving of capital punishment? Well, in the law of Moses, which comes later, the death penalty was instituted for many crimes like rape and adultery, homosexuality, hitting, cursing, and rebelling against your parents. Look out, kids. That could get you the death penalty. Cursing God, breaking the Sabbath. The fact of the matter is if we went by the law of Moses, most of us would probably be dead. I know I would be. There's no way I'd be standing here if we went by the law of Moses. Also, some people would argue that God didn't always carry out capital punishment, even for murderers. Look at Cain and look at Moses and look at even King David. Plus, when that woman was caught in adultery and even though the law mandated death, Jesus showed leniency. Plus, the death penalty is not a deterrent, people will say. And our judicial system is so messed up, there is no way it can fairly be applied. And we could accidentally execute an innocent person. So these are many reasons that I've heard from Christians that oppose the death penalty. And while I can say that those are some good arguments... And that we should consider them greatly. I can't get past what I believe God's word clearly teaches. And I believe it clearly teaches that capital punishment is to be used by government as a means to protect the value of human life in society. God makes it clear that even an animal that kills a person must pay with its life. And so a wild animal that doesn't even know better has to pay with its life. God clearly in these verses demonstrates the sanctity of human life. And so must we by imposing the death penalty for murder. Furthermore, the New Testament makes it clear that the government can impose the death penalty. Look into Romans chapter 13. There, Paul is under the rule of Nero. Nero was the most violent and vile person towards Christians. And he writes, Paul writes, that Christians are to be subject to the governing authorities. And he answers why. He says, because those authorities are ordained by God for what reason? He gives the reason. So he says, hey, as Christians, we're under this vile ruler, Nero, but we are to be subject to governing authorities. Not, not if the governing authority is telling you to obey the word of God, then you're subject to the word of God. But if it's not disobedient to God's word, we are subject to governing authorities. And he then gives a reason to avenge wrongs and bring wrath including the sword upon the wrongdoer so paul says the government is given 
to avenge wrongs, bring wrath, including the sword upon the wrongdoer. It's clear that God has elected that the state is to judge wrongdoers instead of individuals taking the law into their own hands and exacting some form of punishment that is far in excess of the crime that was committed. And so Paul says the government's job is to do its job. It's to see the wrongdoers, find them, and judge them. That's what Paul says. But we're supposed to have love and compassion towards our enemies. And here we need to know the difference between personal and governmental action. Because if we follow the logic of love and compassion to its final conclusion... We could not ever punish any criminal because we'd have to show love and compassion for them at all times. Furthermore, what about compassion and love for the victims and for for their families? What about showing love and compassion to them? Personal vengeance is wrong, according to Scripture. However, the point of the government is so that justice is served. And so that personal vengeance does not have to take place. So that someone receives their due punishment. That is the whole point. Personal vengeance is removed and replaced by justice being served through the government. And when just punishment that is proportionate to the crime occurs it's a foundation for ethical responsibility and it gives moral significance to our actions within our society so if we take away the penalty for crime then crime becomes insignificant and if we take away the death penalty for murder then life becomes insignificant which is exactly what we have done Can't you see it? Our society has made human life insignificant. Furthermore, those who argue that capital punishment for murder is immoral for the state to kill a murderer is to act no better than the murderer, they claim. There is all the difference in the world. However, between taking the life of a of, uh, for, for selfish and personal reasons and taking the life and the cause for justice. We need to appreciate firstly that God's right is over life and death. It is God who gives this right. God says, I have instilled civil authorities to take the life of a murderer. The ultimate crime against humanity, God says, deserves the ultimate penalty. Well, we say, oh, God, we know better than you. No, it doesn't. And when somebody says to me, the death penalty is wrong, my response is, no, murder is wrong. This person murdered someone that was innocent of breaking any law They've taken someone's life that is made in the image of God. And now the state is killing the guilty person to uphold the law. And when we refuse to make any distinction between murder and a government carrying out justice, we deny all principles of law and justice. 
I love what the American commentary says here. It says, capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon anyone who, profane, who would profane the sanctity of human life. Well, that person needs an opportunity to repent. That's not even a valid argument because God does not always remove consequence to sin, even though he forgives sin. Well, if we, we hold to a view of capital punishment, then, within, then what should we consider to be worthy of a crime? of capital punishment well at minimum first degree murder otherwise human life has no value and if i'm perfectly honest i would be in favor of going further than what i could probably biblically defend for such things as repeat child molesters or rapists or those that show no value for human life at all god's primary concern is with justice and the death penalty should be applied evenly for all people after a fair trial and thorough convincing of guilt and we could argue all we want that the death penalty is not a deterrent but again it doesn't matter if we think in only terms of deterrence and cures we've removed the criminal from the sphere of justice Failure to take seriously what a criminal deserves and only to consider what will cure him or her or deed or others will result in total abolition of justice. And the history of our world is littered with cases of people being tortured and killed, not because they deserved such treatment, but to appease public opinion or to enforce a warning. If a criminal is to receive a fair and moral sentence for his crime, it must be in terms of retribution. And the great judge of all the earth has determined that for murder, the death penalty is the only just punishment. And I personally believe that if it were carried out correctly, swiftly, and uniformly, it would be. And I can guarantee you this, it would prevent a murderer from ever murdering again. Is there the possibility that an innocent man could be executed? Yes, because people are flawed. And the best of our institutions are run by people who are sinful and fallible. They make mistakes. But this in no way invalidates the principles laid down. This is why the judiciary process should be followed. And if there's even the slightest doubt that the person should, then the person should not die. However, emotion must be separated from decision. Life and death decisions are made every single day by our government. On rare occasions, there may be an innocent person that will be killed by capital punishment. However, many more innocent people will be killed by murderers who are allowed to live without capital punishment. We're not called to think through things with our emotions. We're called as Christians to think through things biblically. And see what the Bible says. And the Bible appears abundantly clear in Genesis chapter 6 and in Romans chapter 13 that we should follow capital punishment. And I've not found a biblical argument yet that is persuasive enough to overturn what Scripture says. Why? Because it's necessary to uphold the sanctity of human life. And we have devalued human life and we continue to devalue human life. 
it is clear that God believes in the sanctity of all human life. From conception to the day that that life takes its last breath. He values it all. Because we are the only ones made in his image. And how dare we think that we know better than God. And think that we can tell God the value of a life. I don't want you to think, well, that was a nice sermon. I walked away now knowing how to defend capital punishment. Or I walked away now knowing that I need to value human life. I want you to understand that all life is sacred. I want you to understand that all life has value. And as followers of Christ, we need to make it clear that we believe in the sanctity of human life. So what do we do? Do we just listen to this message and think, well, I value human life, then do nothing with it? Some of you can get involved in pro-life groups. There's pro-life agencies here in Tazewell County that need help with counseling. We have, as a part of what we're doing, the baby bottle blessing. If you haven't taken a bottle yet, take one and fill it with some loose change. If you've already taken one and you can do another one, do another one. Perhaps you have an idea or a way to help unwed mothers or mothers that are struggling with pregnancy. And you want to start a ministry here in our church, then start it. Perhaps you want to start some sort of adoption ministry or a foster parent ministry. My wife and I are foster parents. Then do it. You, maybe you have questions like, how do I do that? Or I don't even know what foster parenting is about. Come and see me. Come and talk to me. I would tell you it's not that hard. The training's not that hard. Once you get the kids, it's a little different story. It suddenly becomes hard. But those are ways to be involved. We should always, and I mean always, vote pro-life. And you say, well, why? Because God's pro-life. We should be willing to write our legislators, write our newspapers, write whoever it takes to write to defend the unborn. Because they can't defend themselves. We should be a people of prayer. We should pray for the government. We should pray for those in authority. That justice is carried out in our land. That we should, we should pray for the sanctity of human life to be restored in our country. It's one thing to say, God bless America, but we're killing our own children. Do we think that God is going to bless that? Thousands upon thousands of babies dead every single year. We think that God is going to bless that. And you say, well, it's a, it's a fetus. Well, you're right. That means baby. So that's exactly what it is. 
and you go and see a video of an abortion and you tell me it's a clump of cells, it's real. And this is what we do as a nation. And then we cry out to God for bless us, to bless us when we're not willing to do anything about it. Church, I want to close with this. Perhaps you're here. Perhaps you've had an abortion. Perhaps you've counseled someone to have one. Maybe you just know someone who has had one. Maybe they did so in ignorance. Maybe you've done so in ignorance. Maybe not. And maybe you've come to the realization how wrong and sinful it is in the sight of God. Because he's instituted the sanctity of all human life. Let me tell you this morning, though God takes sin seriously, he is also a forgiving God who's full of grace and mercy. And even murderers have found grace in Christ. And through Christ's death on the cross, God maintains justice because Christ paid the price. But also he shows love by giving a pardon to any who will receive it. No matter how great the guilt you feel in your life, God's grace is greater. Right now, this morning, you can receive the gift of forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ. My challenge to you, church, is it's time to take action. Don't sit and wonder what you can do. Just do something. the Lord's spoken to you this morning in any way, I'm going to be standing down front. If you need prayer, or you want, want to pray on your own, you can do that. You can pray in your pew. If you need someone to talk to, you can hang out till after the service. I'd gladly talk to you. You want to talk about any of this, I'd, I'd gladly do that with you. just want you to know that I'm available. Let's close with prayer this morning.